Welcome to episode 12 of the TTM Academy podcast. I'm your co-host, Felipe Tran, recording from the Center for Resuscitation Science at University of Pennsylvania. I'm here today with Dr. Ben Abella, editor-in-chief of the TTM Academy and director of the CRS. Today, you're up for a treat. We have a big trial that came up this week in New England Journal of Medicine on a very important topic for post-cardiac arrest care. It's going to be one of those big landmark trials that people talk about, big studies that, that uh, change practice. We're talking about the Hyperon trial, and that is therapeutic hypothermia after cardiac arrest in non-shockable rhythm. A study conducted in France included 25 ICUs. The lead author is Dr. Jean-Baptiste Lascaru. Kudos to Dr. Lascaru and his entire team for this amazing undertaking. The first that I want to share with you is an anecdote. Ben Abella, my mentor, pretty much since I met him, he has been uh, telling me and, and others, pretty much anyone that would listen, that the brain does not discriminate rhythms, that patients that survive cardiac arrest, regardless of the rhythm, very likely will benefit from targeted dendritic management. And this landmark trial today, or yesterday, comes to confirm this uh, idea. So a little bit of the background. We know that fever is harmful for patients in post-arrest. We know that fever leads to worsened mortality and worse neurological outcomes. There were a number of landmark trials conducted in the early 2000s, starting by the HACA trial and the Steve Bernard trial, both published in the same issue of New England Journal of Medicine in 2002, where they demonstrated that patients with ventricular fibrillation cardiac arrest that were treated with hypothermia to 33 degrees Celsius had an increased survival after receiving this therapy. Following that study, in 2013, Nicholas Nielsen's trial compared 33 to 36 degrees Celsius. And they demonstrated in that study that it basically didn't really matter which temperature you chose. That there was no significant, significant difference in the mortality or neurological outcomes of these two groups of patients. But the thing is, throughout this time, over these different studies, we had been focusing on the same population of patients with shockable rhythms, with ventricular fibrillation specifically. Whereas the patients with non-shockable rhythms, a systole and PEA, had been sort of ignored. There had been some observational studies that showed possible benefit, but we had really not had any high-quality evidence. So the study that Dr. Laskiru conducted is the first study really providing high-quality evidence in regards to the effect of targeted temperature management in patients that survive cardiac arrest with PA in asystole. So there is lots to discuss in this study. Ben, why don't you tell us what was the population involved in this study, and we can go from there. Thank you, Felipe. So yes, this is indeed a landmark study and an important one looking at non-shockable rhythms. And it's important to remember that most cardiac arrests currently seen by all of us clinicians are non-shockable. So this is a very relevant question. We see a lot of PEA and a lot of asystole. We see less and less ventricular fibrillation, and there have been theories as to why that's the case. In part, it's the use of automated external defibrillators. In part, it may be some of the medications we treat people with chronically. Regardless, 
how we manage PEA in asystole patients post-arrest is a very relevant question. So this study in 25 franchise CUs was conducted between 2014 and 2018, so a recent time period, and they asked the question of whether outcome would be better by managing patients at what is considered conventional TTM, that is to say 33 degrees, versus controlled normothermia at 36.5 to 37.5, if you like, 37 degrees. So 33 versus 37. And they looked at outcomes in a rigorous fashion in that they looked at 90 days post-randomization, whether patients had a CPC 1 or 2, so cerebral performance category 1 or 2, Said another way, a good neurologic outcome at 90 days. This isn't just survival to discharge. This is meaningful neurologic recovery. And they looked at that outcome in these two groups. Now, they enrolled a fairly typical arrest population. The median age was 67. It was about 60 to 65% male. That is fairly typical uh, baseline demographics for uh, many arrest cohorts. Now, what's interesting is they included both out-of-hospital and in-hospital arrests. About three-quarters were out-of-hospital, one-quarter in-hospital. Uh, some people might gripe at this. Purists might say these are uh, difficult apples-to-oranges comparisons. Nonetheless, they did group both uh, groups of patients. Most arrests were witnessed, certainly in-hospital uh, most were, and out-of-hospital as well. And about 70% of these patients had bystander CPR, which is a fairly high rate of bystander CPR. But remember, these are patients who got their pulse back, so it enriches for those who got bystander CPR. And this is comparable to the 2013 TTM trial that had a 73% bystander CPR rate. So that's fairly similar. Now, what they found when they enrolled these patients, and I, by the way, I should say that all 25 of these ICUs had fairly well-harmonized protocols of care. They had careful avoidance of early withdrawal. They had uh, TTM protocols in place. Although it should be said that the devices used were different in each of the ICUs, and we'll return to that later when we discuss the implications of this study. In these 25 ICUs, they found the following fundamental top-line results. They found that survival in the group that was cooled to 33 was 10.25%, so 29 out of 284 patients in that group survived, or 10 and a quarter percent, compared to 17 out of 297, or 5.7% in the 37-degree group. So 10 and change percent survival with CPC 1 or 2 in the 33 group, and 5.7% survival in the 37 group, a statistically significant difference in neurologic outcome in these two groups. So the top line result, cooling to 33, resulted in better neurologic outcomes than managing patients at 37. Now, this was interesting because the mortality was the same. So mortality was 81% in the 33 group and 83% in the 37 group. So a high mortality that was similar in both groups, but there was a neurologic survival difference. Now, this is very different than the TTM study, which had only about a 50% mortality. And we'll, again, get back to that in our discussion when we get to some of the fundamental reasons why we think this study showed what it did. But I should just say first that this result, that cooling to 33 was better for asystole and PEA patients, was consistent with a number of observational studies that have shown this albeit with less high-quality evidence. For example, uh, Perman et al. in circulation showed that in a propensity analysis that cooling patients with PEA resulted in better outcomes than not cooling. Other studies have done this as well. So there's a large body of evidence that is observational in nature that now we have an RCT that confirms it. 
And I think this, this result is satisfying because it also has face validity. As, as Felipe kindly pointed out, there are many, not just myself, who would say that the heart does not stare down the carotid arteries and vertebral arteries and say, gosh, what was the cardiac arrest rhythm? The, the brain just cares uh, about blood flow. So the brain cares about ischemia reperfusion injury. So there's a good reason why you might expect ischemia reperfusion biology to be the same whether the cardiac rhythm was V-fib or PA or systole or what have you. Of course, the etiologies may be different. The protoplasmic differences in the patients and their survivability may be different, but the brain just cares that there's no blood flow and then blood flow. So this is, is really important. And, and to highlight a couple of the key results in, in a little bit more detail, I think one of the most important figures to look at, if you're following along with me in the paper, is figure three, which shows the breakdown of CPC outcomes in these two groups. And what you can clearly see is that the CPC three group shrinks, the one and two group grows, and the five group stays the same. Let me say that in more simple words. What cooling may be doing, and this has been believed based on a number of studies previously, cooling cannot fix you if you are bound to die, if you're tremendously ill and you're moribund, cooling will not save you. What cooling will do, however, is take the patients who are intermediate, who are injured but maybe not mortal, and shunt them towards a better outcome. Said another way, the application of good TTM care may make outcome more bimodal. Either you will live and survive and your brain will recover, or you will die. What you're left with is fewer intermediate injured patients, CPC 3 and 4, which you could argue is actually a superb outcome. What patients and their families fear is neurologic devastation and survival. Death or survival of CPC 1 or 2 seems to be more the pattern. And as I said, observational studies in the past have shown very similar sorts of analysis that cooling will basically take people who are partially injured and improve their outcome, probably in part through very, very aggressive fever avoidance, although there may be other biologic principles at play as well. So figure three is a nice demonstration of what really are the fundamental results, that mortality is the same, but neurologic recovery is better. Now, Felipe, I think really one of the key questions we are forced to address here for our audience is why is this different and how is this different than the TTM trial? Um, but before we get to that, I do want to point out one thing that is similar between this and the TTM trial. We often hear talk that hospitals don't like to cool to 33 because they're worried about side effects, bleeding, arrhythmia, pneumonias, other things. I'd like to point out that in this trial, the bleeding risk was the same at 33 or 37. About 5.5% in both groups had bleeding. Also, the ventilator-associated pneumonia rate was similar in both groups, non-significant. Indeed, in the adverse events presented in this trial, there were no differences at 33 or 37, which, by the way, is consistent with the TTM trial from Nicholas Nielsen in 2013, where they found no significant adversity differences between 33 or 36. So to those who hear at their hospitals, oh, let's not cool to 33 because 36 or 37 are safer. That may be the case in specific patients, but in general, in aggregate, that is a difficult statement to make based on now the cumulative data from this trial and the TTM trial. Now, we've dispensed with adverse effects. Felipe, I think we should discuss a little bit why is this different? How do we put this study in context with the work of Nicholas Nielsen and colleagues in the TTM trial published in New England Journal of Medicine in 2013? Absolutely right, Ben. And I think it, even before we get to that point, actually, uh, in order to really interpret those results and understand where the benefit might come from, I think we need to understand even better 
who these patients were. Beyond just saying that these patients had a non-shockable rhythm cardiac arrest, it's important to point out that these patients were pretty sick patients. It was a cohort of patients with large majority had uh, hemodynamic instability and shock. For the most part, they were hypothermic at, uh, at arrival. The initial temperature of the presentation was around 35 degrees, and there's a lot of uh, this information is in the supplemental tables. So why don't you tell us, Ben, what were some of the exclusion criteria that they included in this study? I think it's important to know who was left out uh, in order to interpret appropriately. Well, before I get to exclusion criteria, Felipe, I think it, to underscore your point, the majority of patients in the study were actually asystolic. And as many of you know, asystole is sometimes just degraded ventricular fibrillation. But in any case, asystole tends to be a surrogate for longer downtimes and more advanced resuscitation injury. And so these were very sick patients. Over half of the patients had cardiogenic shock. Uh, mortality was very high. And so I think that's one of the biggest differences between this and the TTM trial. The TTM trial tended to have less sick patients. Survival was much higher. Most of the patients in the TTM trial were ventricular fibrillation patients. So they're really different cohorts. And I think this highlights a fundamental fact that we have to think about in cardiac arrest, that we are treating patients generally all the same. Right? We, we say our protocol, we cool to 33. Our protocol, we manage at 36. We manage all patients at 24 hours. But risk patients come in different flavors. Some are much sicker than others, even the ones who are not awake after ROSC. And so this speaks to the fact that we really need to move towards tailored care. We need to start thinking about the patient in front of us and what their dose of TTM or what their treatment should be. I think that one of the biggest differences between the TTM trial and this one are, as you said, the, the baseline sickness of these patients. And while the mortality is much higher, so therefore uh, the, outcome, you know, the outcome is worse, the chance to benefit from TTM is greater. So the sicker the patients, the more they might benefit from aggressive care. The less sick the patients, the more TTM might not even be required. I, I must say, I often wonder in the TTM trial whether these patients needed cooling at all. Their survival rate is so high. Now, I think in part that speaks to just how superb the care they received. Uh, they had very strong protocolization of care in the TTM uh, protocol. But I do think that fundamentally it was just a different patient population. And one of the things that I've always worried about the TTM trial is whether it applies to me, you know, whether it's generalizable. And you have to think in your context. In, in my context, where I work at the University of Pennsylvania, we see a lot of asystole, a lot of PEA. Most patients don't get bystander CPR. These are very sick patients. They come in with a pH of 6.9 and a lactate of 10. This is to say... The TTM population is generally not the population I see. The population I see is much closer to the population in the Hyperion study, uh, in, in this French study. And so uh, generalizability is always important. Now, as far as uh, your question about exclusion, they did, in fact, try to prevent having overly moribund patients. So they excluded people who were moribund. They excluded people who had a more than 60-minute no low-flow time, which is a lot. So that's a fairly large no-flow time. They also excluded people who had uh, severe cirrhosis, other moribund conditions, uh, so other sorts of things. But nonetheless, this was a much sicker population than the TTM group. Fair enough, Ben. 
So a question I have for you is regarding one of the main aspects of the study, which has to do with the intervention, right? So the intervention here is temperature management, is cooling. And so I think there's some clear differences when we compared this study with the TTM trial in terms of the precision of temperature management, even more specifically, uh, perhaps uh, talk about the presence of fever in the group of um, the was randomized to 37 degrees. Um, I think if we go back to the figure that you pointed out, in figure two, we see the temperature over uh, time since randomization. And if we go back actually, and you look at the similar figure in the TTM trial, you see much narrowed error bars and, and standard deviations. So the control was much tighter of the temperature that both groups received. And I think that might have something to do with the differences that we are appreciating here. Yes, I, I think that's right, Felipe. Fever is a, a very big clue in this study. One thing that is knowable from the supplemental files is that many of the patients in both arms had what they called basic external cooling without closed-loop cooling devices. Now, what do I mean there? Well, there's basically two ways to cool folks. One is with closed-loop devices, and one is with just simple cooling methods. Closed-loop devices are thermostatically controlled devices with some form of feedback of a thermometer. So, for example, there are many commercial systems you can purchase, catheter and external systems, where you have a Foley with a temperature sensor, and the machine auto-regulates and, and keeps patients clamped at a temperature. Compare that with non-closed-loop systems, or it's basically just a cooling blanket, and you have to put on or off the blanket or change the power of the blanket depending on what you measure the temperature to be. Much cruder, much more uh, variability. Now, interestingly, in this study, in one arm, 37%, in the other arm, 50%. So a big chunk of patients had no closed-loop cooling, which means they were set up to have more fevers. It's really hard to manage post-arrest neurogenic fever without a thermostatic-controlled feedback device. Now, full disclosure, we use a thermostatically-controlled device, so perhaps I'm intellectually biased, but it, it's important to note that in many studies where they did not use thermostatic controls, this being one of them, temperature is more variable. It's just really hard to manage. And, Felipe, you're quite right. In figure two, you can clearly intuit that many patients had high temperatures, there was variability, and there may have been some degree of fever in those crucial first few days when brain injury is trying to resolve. And so I think that one of the big differences here between this study and the TTM trial of 2013, we mentioned one of them, there's sicker patients in the study, but the other really big one is that many of these patients had much more variable temperature control and much more fever burden. And if that's the case, then this highlights the fact that we really need to control temperature well, that if you're going to do 36 and follow the TTM trial, you better really make sure that patients don't creep up into the febrile zone. You better use a thermostatically controlled device. Now, of interest, the TTM investigators are currently following up their study with TTM2, a subsequent study that will test closed loop versus non-closed loop. I must say, I worry a little bit about that in the light of these results, because many patients in that study may now have worse temperature control. We'll see what their results are. We'll, we'll see how their investigators feel in light of this new study that comes out. I think that's an important conversation to have for another day. For now, though, we can certainly say that many patients in this study had less well-regulated temperature control. This is a sort of a real-world pragmatic fact. By the way, the authors make no uh, apologies for this. They point out that this is a pragmatic study. This is a very real-world-based study. And in the real world, the hospitals used what they used. 
But I think one of the key buried findings here is that if you're going to manage patients with TTM, you really need a closed-loop device. It's just hard. It's really hard for human beings to manage temperature at a non-physiologic set point in an injured brain. And so I think these early fevers we know are bad. There's strong evidence for that. And these patients got fever. And so that may be one of the other key differences why the 33 group had a better result. That's really interesting, Ben. To expand a little bit more on that aspect, fever, not only there was fever in the group randomized 37 degrees during the intervention period, but there was also fever after the conclusion of the intervention. And that's an aspect that the CRS actually published data a few years ago on this uh, phenomenon of rebound fevers, of fever after discontinuation of targeted temperature management. If you look at the supplemental data, there's a nice table actually where they communicate the temperature of patients in day four, five, six, and seven from randomization. And we can see there that there was uh, quite a bit of patients having the spikes of fever. There is a possible explanation here that is described in the study, which is that they essentially discourage clinicians to have around-the-clock antipyretics. What are your thoughts on that? Where does this evidence lead us in terms of the management of patients after we've concluded the period of TTM? These are important questions, and truthfully, we don't know. What I can say is there's very good animal literature showing that brain injury following cardiac arrest resuscitation lasts for days, even as long as a week, depending on the patient. And so this notion that we cool people for 24 hours and then we're done just flies in the face of the biology. Injury goes on for days and days. Now, the American Heart Association guidelines suggest that it is reasonable to have a period of controlled normothermia after cooling and rewarming. And that's part of our practice. We recommend a 24-hour period of controlled normothermia after rewarming. And we do that based on prior data from Marion Leary and others uh, in our group who have published on the effect of elevated temperature. And Grossestor as well published very nice data showing that there's a dose effect of post-TTM fever and outcomes. So the higher the fever, the worse the outcomes. And so do we manage that with the cooling devices? Do we manage that with towel? Do we manage that with steroids? We just don't know. Certainly, since many of these patients are getting a cooling device anyway, it seems reasonable and practical just to leave it on and have a controlled period of normothermia. How long? Who knows? We do 24 hours. Should it be 48? Should it be 72? We're now in the realm of we just don't know. And it almost certainly depends on the patient and their degree of neurologic injury and their degree of fever. One thing that some people may not be fully aware of is some of the commercial devices on the market give you a readout of the water bath temperature. That is to say, what the machine is doing to maintain temperature. This is an often neglected, but I think really valuable piece of data in the clinical care of patients. If the machine is on and managing a patient, say, at 33, but the machine is working a lot harder, that is, the water bath temperature plunges and is much lower, that says that patient is trying to mount a fever and the machine's working hard to avoid it. On the other hand, if the water bath temperature is higher, it's working less hard. So that's important clues to whether the patient is trying to mount a fever. And and we just don't know, and we need more work in this area to be sure. But we do know is that we're not done. None of us are done and can claim success when we've done 24 hours of cooling, rewarm, and that's it. No, there's ongoing brain injury in many of these patients. There may be an ongoing pyrexic response, and we need to manage that. Well, I think, Felipe, we've covered a lot of ground, and we should let our listeners have a break and look at the paper themselves. I just want to conclude by pointing out the key 
findings and differences uh, with the TTM trial. The findings are that managing patients at 33 showed better neurologic recovery at 90 days than managing patients at 37, both with a TTM protocol but at different temperatures. The differences between this and the TTM trial that showed no difference between 33 and 36 are A, there's a one degree difference in the control groups, but I really fundamentally in my heart don't believe that was the root of the issue. I think the big issues are the patients in this trial were much sicker, with a lower survival rate, more cardiogenic shock, and the patients in this pragmatic trial had a higher fever burden than the TTM trial, and therefore they were more exposed to potential bad outcomes if they were left at 37, which is much closer to the febrile margin. I should also point out the number needed to treat in this was very impressive. It was 22. So this is not as small as some people might have thought for asystole and PEA. So if you get an asystolic or PA patient now after the publication of this trial, I think you're hard-pressed not to do TTM. It is no longer going to be okay to say, oh, it wasn't a VFib patient. Don't manage them with targeted temperature management. So what is the clinical bottom line from this work? We believe that this Landmark paper suggests that most patients following cardiac rest should receive targeted temperature management to a target of 33 degrees Celsius for 24 hours. The study clearly shows that 33 degrees Celsius resulted in better neurologic outcome than 37. Now, some listeners who know the TTM trial well would say, well, what about closed-loop management of temperature at 36? And I would say, yes, this current trial does not refute that. And we at the University of Pennsylvania manage most patients at 33, but some patients we do manage at 36 for particular reasons. That deserves more time and attention and indeed was the focus of our first podcast in this series. So if you have not listened to that, I recommend listening to podcast number one on 33 versus 36 in real-world clinical practice. So I think with that, we should probably conclude, Felipe, if that's okay with you. And I would just like to thank all of our listeners for listening to our podcast series. You can also check out more of our content and some of our live workshops at the TTM Academy at www.penttm.com. Our podcast, of course, can be found on iTunes as well as on Google Play. Many of you have found us through different sources. And we look forward to joining you again for our next podcast two Fridays from now. Thank you very much, everyone. All right. Thank you, Ben. That's all for today. Consider also following us on Twitter at PenTTM, where you can send us your questions and ideas for future topics that you would like us to discuss. Don't forget to check the website, and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.